Welcome back to Managing Marketing. I'm in New York today and I'm meeting with an old friend, Annalie Killian, who's the Future Maker Director of Human Networks at Sparks and Honey. Welcome. Hi, thanks Darren. It's great to see you. <laughs> uh, it's been interesting because we've we actually met quite a while ago um, at the foreshore at Nielsen Park, didn't we? Was it there or was it through um, James, James Welsh? Welsh yeah. yes, it was actually yes. on the foreshore there really? on Australia Day. I remember it very well because at the time you were introduced by a very interesting title. He said something about magic. Yeah, Catalyst for Magic. Yeah, the Catalyst of Magic. Yeah. And that's because of your role of being the founder and executive producer and curator of the Amplify series, wasn't it? That's right, yes. So that was um, while I was at AMP in Australia. Yeah. Now, one of the things that uh, Amplify seemed to be all about was bringing interesting network of people together and then sharing new and innovative thoughts. That's right, isn't it? Well, there was actually a very purposeful design. Um, the bringing together of the people was a consequence of the design, but essentially what I um, saw when I was asked to lead innovation culture by the CIO who uh, hired me for this role was um, that I, d I found that organizational learning was way too slow and really not plugged into the edge where the change was happening. Mm -hmm. And so what I wanted to do was create a mechanism for accelerated learning. and. The people that I brought in were handpicked for their edge-dwelling capabilities mm -hmm. um, and then brought together in a experiential learning environment where also we applied the same kind of principle of emergence, let everybody come mm -hmm. and um, learn and then work out what they do with it themselves. So. It was very much around uh, pre presenting people with change that was happening at the edge in a way that was accessible and that they could process and then take back to the office kind of thing. So it's exposing people to these new ideas, new concepts, new yeah. principles. Closing uh, the gap. But not in a forceful way because it was very much, an, as you say, an immersion process. People yeah. could take away from it yeah. what, the, what was useful to them at the time. Yeah, and I mean, the the principle was, you know, really emerged from complex systems change because you you cannot change a system, but you can seed change within the system. And so this was about introducing the seeds to create the change mechanism and to sort of um, accelerate it through the designs that we did through Amplify. So what we found over time is that... Um, in the, in the first year, you would introduce ideas and they would be like seeds. Mm -hmm. And then they would incubate. Um, and by the time that the next Amplify came around, we would find that people had taken those ideas, made them, internalized them and applied them to business problems 
And we would start seeing the projects for investments coming out at the expo at the next Amplify Festival. So it was the cycle. So it was like, if you like, the seeds were planted and by the next Amplify there were seedlings growing and they were presented for, you know, um, do we want to invest in these projects or do we want to cull them kind of yeah. thing. And what, what I like about that is it goes to the very core of the philosophy of education, which is people only learn by building new on top of what they already know. Yeah, yeah. yeah. They um, integrate it with, yeah. with, with their past experience and also with where, what they need to do today and how does it relate to their work. So it comes back to this concept of relevance. Because mm. um, we do a lot of work with marketing teams mm -hmm. in, that are challenged with their digital transformation or their technology transformation or, or sometimes I'll say their customer-centric transformation. Mm. And they really struggle with this concept of evolving or innovating to move forward because they want certainty around it. You know, they want to have a plan for how they're going to transform, a plan for how they're going to innovate in this new space. And so um, it's the lack of certainty often in, the, in that area that um, makes them fearful. I, I think that, um, you know, this, this is not just marketing people's problems. This is, this is a human problem, mm -hmm. um, is that we all love certainty. So the dilemma of we know we need to innovate, but we're comfortable in our zone because, you know, it doesn't require so much effort and risk. So I don't think it's unique to marketing people, but one of the things that I think is problematic with corporate design and thinking is that um, people don't necessarily... I think learn systems, complex systems thinking as part of the education system. No, that's true. And therefore, there is a mental model of treating everything as if it's a complex problem. And a complex problem has a solution. Mm. You just have to find it. Yeah. But when you're in an ever-evolving system that is changing at an accelerating pace, you will never be able to have a single solution to a complex problem. You need to have a series of iterations mm. that responds to the system and it's test and learn, test and learn, test and learn. It's very much the Kinefin framework of operating in, the, in complexity yeah. and the fact that there is no best practice in complexity because it's constantly emerging or evolving practice. Yeah, and I mean, the futurists talk about the VUCA world, you know, um, volatile, uncertain, um, and um, we, you, you just have to open any newspaper or any um, screen today to know that we are living in a volatile yeah, world. Yeah, absolutely. So even people who made strategic plans in... September last year could not have possibly foreseen the election outcome that we have now. And so I'm kind of wondering what this does to human resources strategies in large companies that are reliant on, you know, a diverse workforce. Yeah. So, you know, if you, if you 
can't adapt fast, you're going to be, you know, in a, adapt in a bind. Or, yeah, adapt or die. Well, you're going to be in a bind and your costs are, you know, your, your employee engagement is going to be affected, um, your ability to attract, retain um, and incentivize people would be significantly impacted. And that's why it's interesting how many big corporations look towards technology startups because they hear words like agility and nimble, you know, and they see that in these startups. And they're often looking for what's the secret source or the secret ingredient in, in what makes those yeah. work. And that's because of the mindset of it's a complex problem. There is one solution, we just have to find it. So let's go and see what they do and copy it. But culture is a system. Mm. Culture is not um, a single thing. And so, I mean, that's one of the reasons why I love what I do now, because I think um, the model here has totally uh, nailed this um, concept of, you know, being constantly connected to the edge in real time, mm. real time learning, real time adaptation, which is faster than even most startups. Yeah. And that's, uh, well, let's talk about what yeah. you're doing now, because the title's Director of Human Networks, but yeah. I would have said that you've been doing that most of your life, haven't yes. you? Yes, <laughs> very much so. I'm, I'm, I'm very much a, a magpie for interesting people. You yeah. know? A maven. A maven, you, yes. You go around picking up interesting people who yeah. have interesting thoughts and, and connecting people in interesting ways. Yeah, I think one of the, one of the articles that have, been that have shaped a lot of my thinking um, over the last few years and it really started you know in 2004 when I sort of had to architect a strategic approach for the um, way to build an innovation culture at AMP. I um, read uh, Mark Granovetter's paper The Strength of Weak Ties mm -hmm. and it was just like a blinding flash of the obvious um, that that we surround ourselves with people like us and there is actually very little newness that mm. flows into your network because of all the biases and the things that you know just reinforce and confirm you know who you are what you already know and that, therefore if you want to be ahead be edgy you really need to seek out difference and that's been uh, played back to us, you know, you, you raised the US election at the end of last year and one of the things that's come back is so much of the social networks that people spend time in have actually become echo chambers yeah. because you're inclined to connect to people that are like you, yeah. so all you're hearing back is your own opinion. Yeah, but I think people who connect only to people that they know um, probably do that in real life too. I bet they're the same people that when they go to a cocktail party, they look for their colleagues, they sit next to people they know. So their online behavior mirrors their offline behavior. Mm. Um, on the other hand, there are thousands, millions of people who have f used social and online platforms to discover the edge dwellers. Mm. Um, I have totally used it that way. I almost invariably um, spend as much time uh, with my weak tie networks as with my strong tie networks. Mm. 
because if I look for something new, I go to the edge, yeah. to people that I don't know, or I see the question to the universe, and there's usually somebody that comes back that I haven't heard from or don't know, and they'd respond, and that would start the conversation. And social media networks are actually a very convenient way of being able to maintain quite large networks. You know, there was that anthropological study that said, I think it's about 120 people. Yeah, 150, the Dunbar. Uh, yeah. Right, Dunbar, right. Mm. Yeah, 150 people that are your direct you know, connections, and that's as about as large as you can get. But I'm not sure about you. What, what Your social networks must be much larger than that. Yeah, I mean, I think, I think that... It's not about the size of the network, it's, it's the your... diversity. It, well, but it's also, I think the Dunbar effect is, it kind of probably relates more to how many um, people you can maintain a close relationship with. So that's more a factor of time, I think, and, and preference. But um, social networks do allow you to scale a little bit better because... When, I mean, like, for example, I have now, this is my third continent. So I have a network in South Africa. I have a very big network in Australia, and I'm now growing a vast network here. So I tend to find that I spend more of my available time now on the networks that yield the best um, immediate value for me in my current environment. Mm -hmm. But that doesn't mean to say I um, neglect my past networks. And because of Facebook and LinkedIn, every time I share what I'm up to, all of those networks are mm. still connected. That's why you and I are here talking today. Absolutely. Um, so I didn't have to actively keep messaging you because of my posts. Mm. You know, oh, Annalise in New York, I see her posts. I know when, as soon as I get a message from Darren, oh my God, yes, of course, Darren, we're going to meet up. Mm. So it's allowed us to scale mm. by, you know, being available 24 by 7 without actually having to give it cognitive attention all that time. Yeah, and, you know, there is an amazing uh, convenience and joy as well, because I travel, obviously, yeah. quite a lot with the business. And being able to arrive, I've just come to New York from the UK, and when you meet people, they already have a shared knowledge of what you've been up to, and you have that shared yeah. knowledge. So you probably don't spend as much time sort of catching up Yes. is actually then have the time to really get into and pick up on where that relationship is and moving it forward. Yeah, and, and I mean, when, when you catch up with old friends, um, you know, university and school time friends, um, uh, the, the social networks have created the glue of continuity, mm. as you say, yep. in, in their lives. So you can plug straight in with relevance. You know that your old school friend has had a double mastectomy, so yep. you're kind of going to show up and say, hey, you know, I'm really sorry to hear that. How are you doing? Yeah, the, you know, we share the best and the worst with our, you know, with our friends through these um, networks. And I think that actually does bind, bind us, you know, it, it, it creates that or continues that human connection that you yeah. have with those people. And yet I hear quite a lot of, especially um, 
baby boomers who are becoming incredibly cynical about the superficiality that they see in social networks that they maintain. It's funny that you say baby boomers are seeing that because I actually see that in my young children. My, okay. my children are 19 and 22 and they have on a number of occasions completely deleted their Facebook accounts and started okay. again. Yeah. And it's because I think they're going through formative stages of friendships um, and as their identities you know, unfold. Um, whereas for me, I wouldn't dream of ever deleting everybody on Facebook. Yes, sometimes I feel like, you know... Blocking uh, a few. <laughs> well, I, I have done that, but um, I'm very selective about also yeah. the... Uh, well, not that selective, I mean, uh, but um, I don't generally, you know, friend somebody that I haven't got anything in common yeah. with. But, but, but the children have... Um, I've seen my kids in tears because of the idealized life that uh, they are expected to portray mm. or, you know, needing to be liked. Yeah, yeah. Um, and this curation of perfection, especially yeah. uh, Instagram, is yeah, uh, yeah. because of the superficiality of representing everything in an image. Yeah. And then it's all about uh, how many people like it. That's right. And because my youngest daughter is now sort of working and studying into the fashion and the retail industry, she feels under tremendous pressure to maintain this appearance and a, an Instagram account because she won't get a job in the industry without them looking at her Instagram account. Wow. That's a reality. And so the kids feel under tremendous pressure all the time. So your resume says, and my social media networks are X, Y, and Z, so that you can oh, be checked out. Yes, totally. I mean, I've been hiring people on that basis for many years in communication roles. Um, I would have applicants that we'd hire for a communication role or to do social media or marketing for an Amplify festival, and you'd look at their online profile and it didn't exist or they have a very poorly, you know, completed LinkedIn account. And so for me, it wasn't about the glamour of it. It was more about seeing, do they have an understanding of the communication landscape that we live in? Which is different, isn't yeah. it? Because yeah, one's different. about how well you create a perfect image for yourself. You were using it to see if they actually understand the tools that are essential these days for a communications person. Yeah, and, and you know, do they understand, do they, do they have cultural relevance? Mm. Yeah, well, that's look, um, you know, and that's one of the things I think maybe um, sometimes this idea that the world's changing and it's changing rapidly, culturally it's changing, that perhaps some people are feeling left behind, you know, that they're yes. not adapting to the world as fast as they think they should. I particularly found that, and, and I said baby boomers, only because. Um, the comments came from people who were getting upset about the content being shared by their networks and feeling like they didn't understand their networks anymore. Was this political content? Primarily, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, so I have, um, I mean, what has been very, very interesting is living through these times um, right here in, in the US and um, seeing how literally 
Uh, one of the people on our advisory board here at Sparks and Honey is um, a woman called Laurie Davis. She's an online dating and relationship expert. Okay. She actually wrote a blog post about how people should approach Thanksgiving and Christmas um, in the lead up to the or in the post-election stage, because that was just after the election outcome, because mm. even people are swiping left and right on Tinder based on, you know, political perspectives. So apparently, um, you know, it's... Republican, Republican, <laughs> Democrat, Republican. Yeah, it's made, it's made its way into all of our tools. Mm. And so families are fractured um, and dating is impacted by it. You know, you can't get in a shared car in New York um, without, you know, political conversation. Um, or declaring your political allegiance. Well, you know, and sometimes I think, you know, I think these drivers are saints because they just, you know, stick to their eyes on the road. But, you know, the conversations yeah. and the shared cars are amazing. <laughs> Yeah, absolutely. Um, I want to uh, change focus just for a minute because one of the key areas that we obviously deal with working with marketers, advertisers and their various agencies is this idea of creativity mm -hmm. and the way that it's interpreted, first of all, at a business level and then at marketing and specifically at an advertising level. Because, you know, when we talk to agencies, they talk about creativity, but it's almost spoken about as a tool rather than a process, mm. you know? Um, I'm wondering, have you noticed any changes? Like, a, do you think business is much more open to the idea of embracing creativity as a way of, of drive, you know, a, adapting to the changing world? Or do you think creativity has become a debased concept? You know, I hope you're so wrong about that because um, I think in the long run, um, the only work that will remain in the world will be your ability to be creative in problem solving. So I think that language and semantics cloud things. Mm -hmm. In business, people talk about they want to hire problem solvers. They don't talk about let's hire some creatives. Creatives belong in some arty world in the business yeah. community. but. Do they want problem solvers that can think outside of the box? Absolutely. Yeah. It's just that I think the, um, the, the language hasn't really been fully embraced under the word creativity, um, which, is, which is a shame um, because creativity is not only about problem solving, um, it is also about generative thinking. Mm. Absolutely. And so, and, and, and seeing new opportunities where sometimes there isn't a problem yet. Well, creating new patterns that That's haven't right. previously been recognized. That's yeah. right. Um, and I read a, I, I saw an amazing tweet the other day. I can't remember who said it. And it, I, I thought sometimes you see something in a fleeting moment and the world's wisdom is locked in in 140 characters and you kind of just go, oh my God, it's such a profound way of thinking. The tweet went something like, um, you know, the, the driver of entrepreneurs who change the world is not money. It is the desire to create. Mm. And I just thought, you know, we, we, 
we misunderstand this internal need to create something mm. that is bigger than ourselves. Mm. It is such an important driver for um, for people who end up, you know, being successful and making change real. Yeah. Well, I think it's a driver for all people because in a way, changing the world, creating something, making a mark, leaving something behind is so important to people because it's yeah, in many ways, you know, even though we're not like the Middle Ages where you're going to die at 30 um, and, and, and life expectancy is longer, I think inside everyone there's a desire to make a difference. Well, and, and for some people it would be in a large scale, but mm. for some people it's in a small scale. You know, it could be a mother creating a meal mm. or creating a home. Um, it doesn't necessarily have to be a mother. Let's not gender stereotype. Mm. You know, it's about, it's about doing something outside of yourself. Mm. And, and I think so when we understand human behavior and what makes us our best selves creativity has to feature in that and, and 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 so if you want to lead people whether you're in business whether you're in government whether you're in an NGO or in a creative community if you don't understand the basic um, connection between how people are motivated and creativity, yeah. then I think you're you're definitely not going to get the best results. For people, yeah, because yeah. uh, you know I've come from a science background, yeah. and then I got into advertising. One of the things I hated was the use of creative as a noun. You know, being a creative person, and often uh, the conversation would go along the lines of, "How did you come from science, which is not creative at all?" And as soon as someone said that, I went, "Oh my God, you really have no idea." about the role of creativity in science. Yeah. Because in fact, there's parts of science that are incredibly creative, you know? Um, yeah, I think there was perhaps a time where, you know, there was a, uh, there was a mental model put forward that, you know, you had a left brain and a right brain and the one was, you know, rational and logical and the other one was creative. Well, that has been debunked for a long, long time now. It, it doesn't really work like that your brain's exacts between the hemispheres all the time to integrate things. Mm. Um, but that kind of, I think those models kind of put creatives even, f or creativity even further away from what we thought is, you know, rational and logical and composed. <laughs> mm. Well, because, you know, there was this idea that somehow you had something different from everyone else. Yeah, and you're special fact, kissed by the gods or yeah, something. And, and yet creativity is part of the human experience. I mean, everyone has uh, the ability to be creative, to think creatively, to actually yeah. create something. It really comes down to cultural and uh, an experience as to whether that's something that they suppress or not. I mean, I've got a very good friend who's a very senior partner in an accounting firm who uh, wears caftans and does painting on the weekend, but would never share that with his business partners. Yeah. You know, this is, it's almost like having suppressed his creativity in the environment that it's burst out in his personal life almost to an exaggerated form because it's, you know, it's getting balanced back into his yeah, life. Yeah, a yin and a yang. Um, yeah. But 
But I think also sometimes people put a ring fence around that as well. Mm. It's like sometimes they protect it because they kind of feel that it's their zone for um, chilling out and they don't necessarily, you know, they want to kind of create, keep that separate. It's and, it, and it's okay if that's by choice, but mm. what a waste of human potential if we have access to people with an expansive capability and we pigeonhole them in a particular way. Mm. That's yeah. right. We yeah. stop them fulfilling their complete yeah. potential. And 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 I think the the other part of creativity that, you know, is absolutely important and it goes back to this thing of why entrepreneurs do what they do is the desire to create is personal agency. Mm-hmm. So the the reason why I think creativity is stifled in many traditional businesses is that very few people have control to make decisions mm. by themselves. They have to go up and down an approval hierarchy. Yeah. So they don't feel that they can apply their creativity to get to an outcome in a better way because they have to go through a massive it's approval process, process yeah. or they have to comply with the system. Mm. And therefore, old and outdated mechanisms get perpetuated because people just keep following the rules because, you know, challenging the rules could get you into trouble. Mm. And so, you know, it takes a lot of courage to push back and say, you know, there's a better way or I'm going to try something different. Um, especially if you're knowingly swimming outside the flags. Yeah. <laughs> it's funny you should use that metaphor. I, I yeah, they don't some, understand it here. Yeah, no. <laughs> I took some uh, uh, friends in Sydney, uh, came to Sydney um, from Canada, uh-huh. and we went to Bondi Beach, and I was trying to explain to them why the, the red and yellow flags were there. You know, that that was the safe zone. You could swim. And they're going, but there's people swimming outside that zone. I go, that's okay. But, you know, yeah, yeah. They, they've chosen to do that because that's the safe zone. Stay between the flags, you'll be safe. Go outside and you're taking a risk. Yeah, but but you're nobody's going to lock you up for that. No. You know, you do so. It's a personal uh, choice. It's a personal choice. Mm. And so um, those people have agency. They can decide that they're mm. going to do that, but they, they're very fully aware of the consequences of doing so. Now, um, one last topic I'd love to touch on is technology because yes. it's every part of our lives. Yeah. I mean, we're both sitting here and our phones are flashing and things are going off. You know. um, I'm just wondering your perspective on technology because uh, some people see technology as a driver of all of this change and others talk about it being an enabler that allows us to change. Mm -hmm. And it's interesting because, you know, while it may be seen as quite subtle difference, I think that it actually makes a fundamental difference in people's relationship with technology. Those that see it as a driver feel like it's something external to them that's actually pushing change through, whereas enabling them means that the technology is there to help them be more about who they are. What do you think about that? Um, maybe technology is a bit like culture, is that when, when we feel that we're in control of the technology, then it's an enabler. Mm-hmm. When we feel that the technology is pushing us, then it's a driver. 
Um, we don't control all aspects of technology. Um, so sometimes technology drives the ch changes that we don't want. Mm. Um, but in all instances, we, they, technology was created by mm. us. Yeah. So therefore, it, at some point it was created as an enabler, but it doesn't enable all of us mm. equally all the time. Uh, so okay. I, I give you an example. Yeah, um, sure. I, th I find that I'm increasingly concerned by um, the way in which technology has enabled um, combined with big data um, manipulation at an individual level at an emotional level and at the same time that technology that can be used to manipulate us to do things that we're not even consciously mm. aware of you're talking about Cambridge Analytics uh, well the, that, and, and that the, amongst other things yeah. you know so um, um, and 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 massive automation that mm. is going to be the driver of job losses in mm. large um, yeah. large industries. The retail industry is a fantastic example of that. Um, and the flow-on consequences on real estate and cost of living mm. as a result of the, the real estate in cities becoming vacant and mm. obsolete and that pushes up taxes and mm. all sorts of things and pushes out schools and the ability to afford things and so on. Um, so for those people, I think that they find that they were driven by mm. the technology, not necessarily. So you think it's more, a, a, it's more an indication of whether people feel that it's been a positive or negative yeah, impact or yeah. whether they've had any sort of control or free will about it, whether it's yeah. enforced upon them or so they've it's embraced. both a driver and an enabler. Mm. It's interesting because, uh, you know, for me, it's like, um, well, again, going back to complex complexity systems, yeah. uh, all technology is, is another point of uh, stimulus into the system. And we've seen technology that's been invented because it can be and just failed miserably mm. because ultimately technology is about uh, finding usefulness yeah. and utility, either for the individual or for the system as a whole. So for people to say it's a driver, I'd say it's a stimulus. Mm -hmm. You know, the technology, the innovation, the invention of various types of technology um, actually stimulates the system to respond to it in some way. What's, what's different between stimulus and driver? Oh, well, a driver somehow, uh, for me, infers it pushes. Right? Mm. Stimulus is it comes along and it stimulates something. It stimulates a reaction. You either embrace it or reject it. You, people are either getting behind it and, and encouraging it because you could have the what you think is the best technology in the world. And, mm. and we've seen so many startups that end up going nowhere because they've invented something mm. that really has never got traction with the marketplace. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's yeah. probably so about the adoption, to, yeah. Yeah, they stimulate, they're trying to stimulate a response to their technology, hopefully being positive, but the stimulus is it falls flat. Yeah. yeah, but I think if the stimulus succeeds and there's somebody in front of the stimulus, they will feel that that technology is driving them. Mm. Yeah, of course. <laughs>
But yeah, the best technology are the ones people embrace it because they find utility in it. Yeah, yeah. But, you know, so do criminals, so do uh, the shadow world. I mean, I I found one of the most interesting tracks that um, I attended at Singularity University a few years ago was um, on the future of crime. And it was, I sat there with my mouth gaping to get an insight into just how we were using big data and analytics and you know, prediction and machine learning in large businesses to understand our customers better, the shadow world was employing all the same Same systems. Of course. And very sophisticated and had hierarchies and organizations that mirrored exactly how a large corporation works. And it was like a world that was invisible to me. And I was stunned. Um, And that just made me realize how how blindsided I was um, about that and that, you know, Technology is just a tool. Mm. It's how you use it. Yeah, it could be used for good or evil, but it comes with great responsibility to quote Spider-Man. Yeah, (laughs) absolutely. And and I do do worry that um, technologies that can basically mimic and outperform cognitive abilities of humans is kind of in a different class than machines and robotics that could outperform humans in the physical sense yeah and so i think we are on the cusp of a significant change in civilization Mm. and i do worry that the makers of these technologies and the policy makers Mm. in decisions in decision making seats are just not grasping what they need to grasp or moving fast enough to sort of safeguard humanity because I don't think technology is the enemy. I think it's our inability to understand how to use this in a way that favors humanity rather than the technology. Mm. Or profit alone. Yeah, yeah, profit alone. Because ultimately people have to be before profit. Yeah, absolutely. So we're completely in sync on that and I think when you when we make decisions that put humanity second Mm. um, all of humanity is at risk yeah of course and and humanity I include the natural world under that thing it's not just about humans it's the animal world world, it's the plants it's the environment it's the ecosystem we've only got one planet though uh, Elon Musk is rapidly working towards being able to transport us to Mars well, and I wonder, I mean, back to the start of the conversation about systems thinking is that who is looking after keeping space clean? Mm. So this is private enterprise shooting off into space. The world around us is already full of two billion pieces of space junk. Hello. Yeah. yeah. Who's thinking about that? Who's making policy for space junk? Yeah, they talk about it occasionally, but... Yeah, uh, but, I mean, that's the reality. A piece, uh, a centimetre worth of metal floating in space could be the undoing of a space journey to Mars. Mm. And I don't know how you clean up, you know, space debris. I don't know how you do that. Maybe we need a similar um, type of... um, uh, a rain agreement that they made about Antarctica. You know, they yeah. actually just divide space up 
and say, this is your bit, keep it clean. But, but that'll be really interesting because they're in orbit. <laughs> yeah, they're not in stationary so when it comes orbit. To your in. When it comes to your square spot, you know, you, you have to catch it. Yeah, yeah. Oh, no, flick that one to the Russians. <laughs> Thanks for your time. Thanks, Darren. It's been great catching up. Absolutely, and I look forward to doing more of that with you. Terrific. Thank you. And you're welcome. Thank you.